All right, so I will. I don't, how does Ben do this? So darkness and death, right? Those are two metaphors that we use quite often to talk about pain and suffering. Would you agree, right? You've heard those metaphors use darkness, death, right? Just, oh, really bad stuff. Well, what is it about those two words, right? that image, darkness and death, that makes those things apt ways of capturing our pain and suffering? I mean, we, we just say it. We use that. We read it. We know what it means. But we, why, why does that get at it, what it's like to go through pain and suffering? I think a way to sort of get at the answer to that is to consider the significance of something that brings those two things together in, in uh, a really clear way. And that would be trauma, traumatic events. Now, I say that word, or I say that, give that phrase, trauma, traumatic events, and it's sort of sterile, right? And I can tell, because, you know, you're, you, know, you all, okay, yes, right. What is that? So, so I have a video. It's really brief. You may have seen it already. I have a video that I want you to watch. It's a minute and 30 seconds. Minute and 30 seconds, really fast. But I think that it begins to capture that sense, that feeling of what darkness and death and trauma really is. That video, it tries to consolidate in a minute and 30 seconds what trauma, what trauma, a traumatic event feels like. It's just capturing one. Did you see the, did you see the sort of descent that happens for this girl? That face that you see 
that dead face. You're seeing the impact of a traumatic event. You're seeing trauma unfold. That face is the image of darkness and death. I use this one not because I think war is the most um, central dramatic event. I use this one because it goes very well with the psalm that we'll look at today. But I want us to feel, to feel what this is. There are all kinds of trauma, right? It's a a noxious and terrible event, and these are deeply distressful, deeply painful things, like surviving a natural disaster. That's traumatic. I was living in my house yesterday, and now it's gone. Physical assault, abuse, a life-threatening illness, the death of somebody close to you. That's a trauma. Other things, divorce. Did you know that? Divorce? Trauma. Losing your job again. Not being able to find work again. Those can be traumatic experiences. I mean, you might, you might not experience some of these things as trauma, right? It's not the way it works for everybody. Even surgery. Going through... I mean, I just think trip to the hospital. Going through surgery can mean trauma. The idea in trauma, in a traumatic event, and this is just basic, sort of a a shot, is it's it's something that happens suddenly or repeatedly, right? But it's something that you are not prepared for. You're not prepared for it. You didn't see it coming. And it's something that you are powerless to prevent. Right, that line from old, old, No Country for Old Men, right? You can't stop what's coming. You think you can. But trauma tells you, no, you can't. There could be mild and severe forms, obviously. But I venture to say that many of you, not all, okay, not all, not all, but many of you have experienced this. You've experienced this kind of loss. Trauma is like an impact crater on the soul. I mean, it reverberates in your entire being because it registers in your brain, in your nervous system. It takes over. You experience this shock, this numbing, this collapse. I mean, inside collapse. And a disorientation. It throws our lives into disarray. We don't know where we are. 
we almost disconnect from reality. In trauma, our sense of who we are, our very sense of ourselves, it can get lost. We may feel like, and this can happen quite often, you feel like you're sort of sinking to the very bottom of existence. And you, know, and you see this sort of light that was there. Every, it was light was there one day all around you, and now you see it slowly fading, right? And darkness just... That's trauma. The other part of trauma is that you don't die. Some people want to because of this experience. But you don't. Nonetheless, it feels like a death. It doesn't just feel like a death. You do experience a sort, a kind of death in trauma. Right? You're losing a part of yourself that you will never, ever be able to get back. Ever. Who you were before, it's gone. The story of who you are now, it's changed forever. And the thing is that that's precisely the problem. That, I mean, that right there, that line right there is the problem with trauma. Because we don't know how to make things fit anymore. See, over here, pre-trauma, I had it. I knew, I knew where I was. I was oriented. I felt grounded. I was here. I, I was moving. On this side of trauma, it's gone. And sometimes you can't put words to that, but it, you feel it. You were just gone. That's trauma. Struggling to make sense. And that kind of loss can be absolutely crippling. You might know somebody. We tend to think of like, you know, PTSD, that kind of thing. Is that right? PTSD? Yeah. You think about, that's what we normally, somebody who's come back from war, right? That's not, that's not the only time it happens. Lots of things in our lives can push us to the place where we lose us. We lose ourselves. And so overwhelmed by darkness, so overwhelmed by this death, we don't know. You come to a place where you just don't, you don't know anymore. You don't know anything. I don't know. You feel hopeless. You feel helpless. And part of you sort of doubts there's anything left. That is trauma. That is this darkness and death that we all experience. And that is precisely what the psalmist is talking about, is experiencing in Psalm 88. This is a unique psalm. It's not like the other ones. <clears throat> you know why? Because there is no thanksgiving and no assurance. You'll see this. Right? 
No thanksgiving, no assurance, no hope, no resolution. One of the reasons for this take on this psalm is because of the way that the, books, the book of the Psalms is organized. You know, the book of the Psalms is organized into five books. You might notice that in your Bibles. It'll say book four. Right? I mean, like, it's anticlimactic, but that's, you know, book four, book three. It doesn't say book one, though, and I haven't figured out why. But that's <clears throat> not important. You know where this Psalm falls? Is in book three. And if you want a good book on this, is one recently that came out by O. Palmer Robinson called The Flow of the Psalms. And he sort of, and other, other writers have done this, other people have done this, they've sort of broken the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, or the, the, the whole book of the Psalms, down into different ways of sort of organizing and kind of seeing the flow. Well, what Robertson does is he says, okay, you take the first five, you take these five books of the Psalms, and I can give you the breakdown of the chapters later. And, you know, book one is confrontation, right? Bam! God hits the nations, right? God is king. Nations, you need to listen. And if you don't, it will be bad, right? And then book two is communication, right? Now that's all, all the... All the the, 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 the psalmist, there, there's sort of this idea of talking to the nations going, do you hear me? Really? Come on. Come, come to him. Just acknowledge it. Wave the white flag and come to the Lord, because he's it. That's book two. Book three, well, let's do, book four is maturation. That's where this, you've got this sort of sense of you know, God really is the sovereign God over all creation. Right? He owns it. You've got these really clear articulations in book five that it, Robertson calls consummation. Here's where you, and you know, remember this is where you've got all those like really short, pithy psalms that are all like praises. God, you're amazing. You're great. You're so strong. You're all over everything. You're the best. Right? Book three, in the middle, is devastation. That's where we are. Book three is devastation because book three is peppered with those different exiles, not in chronological order. Syria, Babylon, Philistia, right? That's sort of like this theme that runs through that one. And 88 and 89 are the end of that book. 88 is sort of like this individual song. That's the, you know, take on it. It's individual you got a person, and then 89 is sort of the corporate one. You've already talked, uh, um, you've already talked about 89. Um, ben uh, uh, gave you a nice overview of Psalm 89 before. But those two psalms come at the end of book three. Psalm 88 offers nothing, no hope, explicitly. 89 offers a sliver. So, this book three, if you look at the way that this book was edited, the Psalms were organized, you've got these two Psalms at the end of this third book, and it kind of says, wow, we're, we're at the end of our rope. I don't know how to get my head around this. What the psalmist is expressing in chapter 88 is the trauma of exile. 
The trauma of exile, it's gone. And this trauma of exile that we see take place in history is sort of like this microcosm, this little picture of the larger trauma of a world that has suffered the fall, that has shot through with the impact of sin. And in this book, the psalmist in three parts is going to tell us, show us what we do in this context, in the midst of darkness and death. He's going to show us what we, what we ought to do, what we have to do. The psalmist, three times, in verse 1, in verse 9, the first part of verse 9, and then verse 13, you know what he does? This is a nice, easy way to remember. It's three parts to the psalm. You know what he does in those three verses? He prays. He cries out to God. And you know why he cries out to God? He cries out to God because he, he believes, he believes that this God is the only one that can restore him. So it's a psalm with no hope, no resolution, right? But it's not a psalm of faithlessness. And so what the psalmist does, what he shows us that we ought to do, is he expresses, first of all, his pain and suffering. Then he expresses his confusion. And then he expresses his despair. That's the three parts to the psalm. And it just sort of descends. In the first one, like the psalmist, we cry out to God from the darkness. Expressing our pain and suffering. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Again, he calls out to God because, God, you're the one who delivers. You're the God of deliverance. I know that. I, I know it. It's true. That's why I'm calling out to you. Because I believe that. And this, this introduction... This opening cry is unusual for the Psalms. You know why? Because it goes on and on and on. I cry, my prayer, my cry, right? It's like he's saying, I'm crying out to you. Let my prayer, please, please, God, let my prayer find an audience with you. Get, let it get in front of your face, please. I'm crying to you. And then... He launches into what he wants the Lord to hear. This is the only plea. Please. Everything else is description and statement. Verse 3 says, For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Right? Some places that word full of, right, is used, a lot of places it's used for good stuff. I'm full of blessing, right? I'm full of love for the Lord. He's overflowing, right, beyond capacity. But in this case, what is he full of? Horrible things. Bad stuff. And he's at his breaking point. The idea of this, <clears throat> excuse me, trouble is disaster. 
He has, he has had his fill of disaster. This is, this, is a, this is a guy who's at his breaking point, right? And then he says, you know, you know he, Sheol, right? He's on his tiptoes, ready to fall in. That's a, that's a, a bang-up way to start a talk with God, right? I'm done. I'm about to lose it. And in this case, I'm about to, I am about to go off into death. Literally, death. And then he deepens his experience. In verse 4 and 5, he says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. So he was on his tiptoes, right, ready to fall into Sheol, right, ready to go down to death. And then he follows that up by telling the Lord, you know what? No, wait a minute. It's like I'm already there. I'm already feeling it. This plea is one of total and utter helplessness, right? He says, I don't have any strength. I'm about, to, I'm about to eat it, but you know what? I've already, I already fell, feels like I've been eating it for a long time. I'm done. Helpless. It's like he's reached, like the, you know, and maybe you felt this, the very edge of human frailty. That's where he is. And in, the, in the, his specific place, think about this. Think about what you saw. He has seen the complete destruction of his people. Complete destruction of his people. Waves of foreign forces coming in and taking it all. Right? I mean, you get that, right? I think what we, our tendency, maybe, just a little... Sort of side note, our tendency, I think, my, my, mine has been, is to read these stories about the exile, if you, if you read them at all, right? You know, because it's like a big chunk and it's like not always hard to put together. But if you're reading these things about the exile, if you've been listening to this, right, when Ben has been talking for the last few weeks and Scott's been talking about the minor prophets, right? Sometimes it's easy to sort of have this very clinical Sort of objective view of it, right? Right? We, we think everybody's carried off. Well, yes, because they deserved it. Right? God's justice. And I use the mocking voice not to mock God's justice, but that's sort of what we do. We sort of have this simplified way of approaching what's going on. It was a long time ago, right? Very easy to forget that what that meant was that people died, right? I mean, horrific deaths. Like, you know, hey, here's my sword, and I'm just going to push it right through you, death. Like, you know, I'm just going to chop you up. I'm going to put a hook in your mouth, and I'm going to pull you along. I'm going to absolutely humiliate you. And you think about this, what it would be like to watch this happen to you, to watch this happen to the person that you lived by for 10 years. 
or generations, right? Don't forget, this is real. People died. They suffered. And the justice of God doesn't cancel that out. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why Scripture talks about it. It's still meaningful. That's what he's experiencing. That's his helplessness. That's his frailty. He has no sense of self-efficacy, right? He doesn't have any notion, any, sin, any idea whatsoever that he has any power to do anything. And he shouldn't. He's like the dead. That's what he says, right? I'm like the dead who just lay there still and empty. Because that's what the dead do. That's how he feels. And then when he's, when he's thinking about this, right, he's expressing this pain, and it's almost like, as we move to verse 5, it's almost like he sort of has this conclusion that comes into his head. I just imagine him, him saying these things to God, and then he has this conclusion that he has to cover his mouth because he can't believe he's going to say it. He can't believe that it's dawning on him. Verse 5 says, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. What dawns on him is it's like I have no more bond with you. It's gone. You really aren't my protector, my provider anymore. You're gone. That's what he's saying. When you hear him express this kind of thing, what you need, I guess, to have in your mind is that this is death. To be where he is right now, that is death. And he's not thinking crazy. Remember, exile the king's gone, the temple's gone, the land's gone. Everything that oriented his world is gone. It was supposed to orient his world. It was supposed to give him hope, and now it's gone. His world is literally coming undone. And then verse 6 comes. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark, of the dark, excuse me, of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. He moves from expressing his pain of this experiencing of death. And now he's acknowledging, he's recognizing that it's God who's put him in this place. Now that, that's like the utter experience of no self-efficacy, no ability to do anything. God, you have put me here. God's thrown him into a dark hole, a deep hole, right, that he can't get out of and nobody else can get into to help him. Only God can and he's not there. And then he has this, these 
that's wrath, waves that just come on and on and on and cover him up, overwhelm him. And then the end of this first section, verse 8, he says, this sort of gets to the social. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes, my eye grows dim through sorrow. Literally, it's those I knew are now far away. I'm gone, and they are gone. He identifies himself as this sort of abomination, loathing, right? That's the idea behind um, a horror to them. But really, he's taking on what Israel said about itself or was supposed to say about itself in exile in Ezekiel 36, that they loathe themselves. He's expressing this. And as we end this first section, what we're seeing is that this guy, he's locked in to that state. He can't move. He's at the breaking point, and he can't take it anymore. And he is tired. His eyes, right? His eyes. He's been pleading and watching and waiting. And now he's just tired. He can't watch for God anymore. I I don't have the strength to, to look for him anymore. That's what this does. I want to ask you, did you feel anything as we talked about, as you heard what that psalmist said? Really, take a second and sort of check in with yourself at what's going on inside now that you've heard this. What do you notice about yourself here as these words hit you or assault you, whichever? Did you recognize yourself? Is this you? Has it been you? Like you're, sl- you're slugging through three feet of mud, right? And you are tired. You feel, you're inside you feel that collapse. It's coming. Or it's there. And you're sinking into that black hole. And you find yourself saying, God, don't I belong to you? Anymore? Right? Don't, do you hear me? Do you hear me calling to you? Please hear me. Please, please, please. Hear what I am saying to you because I can't take it. Maybe that's you. Or maybe something entirely different is going on. You heard this description of pain and suffering, and you, you felt something, but you're not real clear. And then as it sort of comes clear, what it, and what you're feeling is a little bit of disgust, right? You don't like this guy. Right? There, are always, there are always both groups in a room, right? You don't like this guy. What he's talking about, what he's saying, it bothers you. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, real spirituality, in real spirituality, you don't say things like this. 
Oh, come on, people. Really? We do. Real spirituality, you know, we don't say things like this. I mean, you might, you might say it for a little while, but, but generally on the whole, we don't say it. Right? When that feeling, you know, you know, when this kind of feeling comes up, you just, that, we just put that away. Right? Get rid of that. Put that on the shelf or what, down the toilet, whatever. Right? But could it be, could it be that when you hear this, this description, someone talk like this, could it be for you that what you're, what's going on is you know, shame and sadness and all that kind of stuff, that yucky stuff, right? pain? It's not okay to feel it. You're, like, you're thinking, you know, we don't do that around here, right? In, there's no space in here for that, no. Can't let that happen because that, that really feels too much like weakness. Mm, don't do weakness. I say that, I want to make that point here now because that can happen. We can hear stuff like this and sort of dismiss it and sort of do an end around and inadvertently put ourselves in the position of like the super spiritual and the godly because we feel absolutely nothing. I am a computer and I glorify God, right? I mean, you, my friend, have problems (laughs) because you feel anything. That dichotomy can get created real quick, and it is a problem, okay? It's a problem. Consider this. What if, and I've heard, said this before to people, because I, I find it, I, I find that it, I, for me anyway, it's gotten more traction. What if the only real way to be truly spiritual or godly is to really bring all of ourselves to him? What if that's how it happens? You actually bring that stuff that is in here to him. We need to bring those cries to him, all of these cries to him, even the sinful ones. Why? Because we need his mercy and grace applied to them. But it's sort of like a catch-22, right? We need his mercy and grace applied to our struggle. But if we're going to do that, we got to bring it. But if you're going to bring it, you got to allow it. you got to own it. And that can be not mocking anybody. That can be very, very, very hard to do. Lost my place. Where am I going? Ah. In the next part, part two, we cry out to God from the darkness, expressing confusion. Right? So, brought the pain and suffering, they're expressing confusion. He says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. 
I spread out my hands to you, right? This is not a plea. He's not saying, I'm making my, I plea to you, God. He's telling God what he's doing. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, God, I called you. Did you hear, did you know that? I, I called. I've been calling. Oh, daily calling. He's got this posture of openness, right? Dependence and emptiness. He he knows he doesn't have anything. So he comes to God. And being on his tiptoes, about ready to fall into Sheol, what he's coming to God and he's saying is, really? This is is it? This is where it's going to end? Death? I don't get that. And so he asked questions that are confusion questions, but they're sort of like more rhetorical confusion questions meant to make an appeal or an argument. And listen to what he says. Verse 10, he says, um, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. That means you break and really reflect on this. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Right? What is he doing here with these questions? He's coming to God going, really? This is it? Because you know, death is kind of final. It's over. Remember, you're in a period of history. At this point... In redemptive history, you're in a period of history where death and sin and Satan have not been finished, have not been dealt with yet. Don't don't impose Christ on this period wholesale. Because history was very different before he got here. And history is altogether different now that he's come. Right? You think about this. This guy's talking about death as it's final because it is. I mean, the hope was the ongoing of generations. Right? That's the promise. That's the hope. And it's, we're not too far away from that, right? Because we, what we're, looking, we're not like, I can't wait to have this disembodied existence where I'm playing harps on clouds. No, that's not, that's, that's not biblical, right? We're waiting for new heavens and a new earth because creation matters. So we're not unlike them in that regard, but you don't have this full, fully developed afterlife, you know, or, or, or as one guy says, uh, life after life after death, right? You don't have that fully developed here. Think about why. Okay, think about this. It, Israel's worldview, the way they saw everything, right? We already talked about temple, king, um, land, right? Well, then we can look at it like sort of from a horizontal way. You've got the most holy place. Who's there? What is that? That's God's footstool, right? God's footstool, and only one guy gets to go in there, barely. He just goes, huh, all right, got the blood done, right? There's the holy place where just the priests get to go. There's the clean place where everybody else gets to camp out. There's the unclean place, which just outside the camp, right, right, if you're a leper or any of that kind of stuff, right? And then you know what's beyond unclean? Death. Do you think that changed after they actually died here? No. Think about Samuel. 
or kings, I think. Right? Where's when Saul? When Saul? Uh, and I always fear I'm getting this mixed up with some uh, Hamlet play, uh, or rather, rather Shakespeare play. But you know, so he went to go see the, the witches. Right? What? He, he's like, hey, I need you to bring up a guy for me. Maybe you know him, Samuel. And where does Samuel come from? Did he come down on a chariot? No, he came up from the ground. Why? Because death was it. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come yet and defeated it. So this guy's not talking crazy, right? He's in a, sitting in a worldview that he knows, hey, all the, all, the, all the happening stuff happens when you're alive. When you're dead, that's it. I mean, it's not hell. I mean, there are people who did it. They're, they're, the, they're the bad people, right? They go to shield. But then you got people that are cool, like Samuel. Right? I don't want you to miss that because this is not a context that's entirely in continuity with where we are after Christ. This guy, he's talking about the finality of death because of that. And what that means for him is this. Okay, so, so if we die... And he's talking about his people, right? So if we die, what happens to your purposes for this people, right? Deliverance. And, and let's just go a little bit further than that. What happens to your purposes for the whole world? Because remember, the whole world is supposed to be blessed through this people. So is the whole game off? Is it all just over? The psalmist is saying, God, help me, help me, please help me make sense of this. I don't understand how this works. And because of what is at stake, he's appealing to God to act. That's, for, that's his questions. Hey, God, look how final death is. Move, please. Do something. I'm calling. I'm calling. Every day, I'm calling. Would you please, please answer? And we know that from that book of the Psalms as a whole that I told you about, books one through five, we do know that there is this hope. But when we zoom in on this guy, we see we just can't see it right now. Remember, he's locked in to this state. He's tied up. He can only see so far. You may recognize yourself here. Been leveled by some devastation. You're barely standing. And you're wondering, God, how does this make sense? How on earth does this make sense? I'm calling, really, honestly, again, I'm calling, I'm calling, God. Help, help, help me out here. Has, has he felt like that, right? Right? Something else happens, and you're like, oh, come on. Would you please just throw me one, just one bone? One bone is all I want. Right? Like when you're in South Texas, Waco, and you're doing a good deed, and you're on your way home, and your gasket head, or is that head gasket? Is that what it's called? 
Maybe there was a reason. And your head gasket blows, right? And you, and you barely make it off the freeway in time not to be slaughtered by the 18-wheelers coming by. And you know what my thirst, I mean, your thir- first thought is? <laughs> right? First thought is, well, I guess no good deed goes unpunished, does it? Oh, really? I'm it? I'm the only one? You're saying, would, would you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Really? This is how it's going to happen. You hear things from people. Can I get some water? I'm sorry. I was thinking to myself, mocking people who bring drinks up here, and I just realized, oh, I need a drink. Okay. You're going through this, saying these things, and then people say things to you, right? And you know what those things are, right? And they're true things. They're true. God works all things together for those, for the good, for good, for those who love him. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. You hear those things, right? You read them. You know those things. But in that moment, what I know that you're saying is, what? Really? Really? Really, that's true. I'm glad you told me. I didn't know that. Thank you. You see, because what I'm doing is I'm sort of left wondering how does fill in the blank, right? Fill in the blank makes sense. How does burying your child make sense? Tell me that. God, please tell me how that makes sense to you. I got a friend who... I went to see not too long ago, and they're going through a divorce. Spouse, one of the spouses just, you know, decided to go. And it's not been pretty. Went to talk to this person. Just to, just to listen. And one of the questions was, how, how, how is this supposed to be good for my kids? How does this do anything good for my kids? This, this thing happening. And you know, it was almost like, it was almost like, and you felt this, I know, it was almost like watching a little, a, a little kid. No, no, not a little kid. It's almost like watching a grown adult who is absolutely terrified 
And they have lost all dignity. And they're saying, no, 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 no. This can't happen. How, 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 how is it any good for this to happen? I can't make it fit. That's what this does. You can't make it fit because you can't see two inches in front of your face because the darkness is that thick. That's what this guy is talking about. The third part, we cry out to God from the darkness expressing our despair. See, it doesn't get any better. Pain and suffering... He's confused about the pain and suffering, and now he's in despair about the pain and suffering. Why? Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you, right? So the psalmist, you got to admire this guy to some extent because he's still coming. I mean, that's the way this psalm is organized, right? Pray, pray, pray. He's still coming. And you know this guy, he's running on nothing because God has not answered yet. That's the kicker here. It is silent. He's not getting a word back, and that's what he says here. He cries to God in the morning, right? Again, hoping that his his stuff will get in front of God's face. That's right, before you, right? Before your face, God. I needed to get before your face so you can address this. I'm hoping that it gets there. I'm crying for help for it to get there. And then morning comes, and what does he get? New mercies? No! No! New mercies? The sunrise doesn't provide any relief for this man. He gets despair because there's still nothing. Verse 14, listen to this. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Remember in the first part of this psalm? He said, you know what this is like? This is like, I can't believe I'm going to say this. This is like being cut off from you, from God, and not, not, him not remembering anymore. Now, he states it directly as his reality. He says, God, why have you thrown me aside? Why have you thrown me away? Because, you know, it feels like you've thrown me away. Why? For the psalmist, God's nowhere to be found. And it's like, it's like a dad. I just say dad because I'm a dad, right? It's like a dad who, and y'all have all, maybe, because moms don't do this. Dads, you know, they come in and, you know, and then they hear all this stuff. Dad, 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 dad. Hey, dad, 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 dad. Hey, dad, dad. Daddy, dad, 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 right? Now, what would happen if, right, they do that, right, Tracy? Okay. What would happen if I walk in and I just hear them and I keep walking? I'm too busy, right? I keep walking. What's going to happen to that kid? What are they going to feel? Oh, jeez. 
guess I don't, guess I don't matter that much. Right? And then what, you know, of course, parents, we love that pain and suffering that our kids have. What do we say? Oh, yes, you know I do. Oh, it kind of doesn't feel like it. This guy, he's calling out to God, and it's like God is ignoring him because he's not getting an answer. And we can say, oh, he's not ignoring you. It's just busy. It's a big world. He, he wrote you down. That doesn't help at all. Because it seems like he's forgotten. He's ignoring. He doesn't hear. And then he goes back to his suffering. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Experience being near death, right? That's what he's been having this whole time. He's saying now, it's been a long time going on. Now, I don't know if he's really, if he's remembering like his enduring this stuff all throughout his youth. Because I mean, potentially he could be, I guess that young, or it could be applying it that way. Or if he's sort of taking a look at history's, uh, Israel's history as a whole. I'm not sure. Either way, in his deep despair, he discovers that this death and this darkness, it has always been there. Always. Creeping. Always present. Always waiting. He just didn't see it. He discovers how truly helpless he really is. Right? That's the very real sense he gets now. Nothing. Verse 16, 17. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me all together. Again, he says, God, you're doing this to me. You're doing this. And he wouldn't be wrong, right? Because we've already mentioned this. God could stop it. He could stop it. God could intervene. He's sovereign. See, that cuts both ways. He could stop it. And the psalmist, he's left with, and you don't. You don't. And he's surrounded by this. This word that he uses, like he's surrounded by the flood, or by the, um, excuse me, um, uh, oh, uh, the dreadful assaults destroy him. You know, that word that he's using there is the kind of stuff that God pours out on his enemies, like Egypt. He's saying, that's happening to us. Exile, that's what was going on. But this guy is saying, you know, and it is all around me, and it's closing in fast. Remember his appeal. Hey, do something, please, stop this, please, act, please. Please, because I can't get through it otherwise. And you see a real clear sort of uh, mirroring of the testimony of Lamentations here in what he's saying. Lamentations 3, it says, I am the man 
who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. That is what the psalmist has to say. And then he gives the last verse. This is the last line of his plea to God. Listen to this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Those he loves are gone. His friends are gone. Far away. He endures pain and suffering, and he endures it in isolation. Isolation. And in the end, and in the end, God still doesn't answer. God still hasn't answered. That's how this ends. The writer of this psalm, he is truly alone. Truly alone. In silence. And what does he have left? Sort of play, right? Who are his companions? Who does he have left to pull close to him? Darkness. That's it. Did you see yourself in this third section of the psalm? You're shocked by the realization, right? And that maybe you really have happened. This has happened to you. Shocked by the realization that you didn't have any control to start with. Has that happened to you? I mean, I know it hadn't happened to you. It was like the little ones, right? The world is my oyster. But have you experienced that? Oh, I really don't have this in my back pocket, this world, the way things go. I don't. This has always been true. And now the floor is dropped out from underneath you. That's what this is like, to have this hit you like this. The floor completely drops out from under you. And you don't have any handles for this. Nothing to grab onto. Nothing to hold onto. And the waves, the waves of this pain, suffering, this death and dark, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Maybe that's where you are. And even worse, you're asking a question you never thought would cross your lips. You're saying to God, why are you nowhere to be found? Why? Why is it that, I, why is it that you won't talk to me? Why is it that you won't speak? Or really better, why is it that you won't act? Because that's the way I would know that you were speaking if you would act. Because do you get how bad this is? Maybe that's where you are. Completely abandoned and asking these kinds of questions. Feeling truly, utterly helpless. Utterly alone. All by yourself. In the dark. And what kind of hope can you get from a psalm like this? We're on the downhill run here, right? What kind of hope can you get from a psalm like this? I'll answer that with a question. 
Did you see your Savior in this song? Was he, did you see him? Did you see his presence all throughout? Or was the darkness too thick to see it? This is an interesting sort of play, right? Right? I mean, this is an interesting little, 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 extra, little experiment, right? Did you find yourself so enthralled with this, with this story that Psalm 88 is telling? Your mind going to all these places in your life where you were going, oh yeah, that's it. That's true. Yes, I get that. Oh yeah, not anymore, but yes. And now that I asked, did you see your Savior? You're like, no, well, I mean, Jesus lives, yeah. Right? If that was you, then you just experienced what this psalmist experienced. In the very act of listening, you just experienced it. Not able to see him. Not able to see two inches in front of your face because of the darkness. It's so thick. He was there. The first way that he was there is your, your Savior changes the questions that this psalmist asks. Right? He changes the answers to those questions because your Savior changed History itself. And you've got to get this, right? You know, this stuff isn't all in God's mind. And, you know, just because God, you know, he has it all up here and it's going to work out because he's sovereign, he can do it. It's got to work out in history. And until it works out in history, Jesus changes history itself. Again, through this psalm, darkness and death, it overshadows everything. It saturates every line. And even after this psalm, right, going on into the book four, maturation, and book five, consummation, right, death and darkness, they're still waiting to creep in. It didn't go away until Christ. He changes that. Only with the death and resurrection of Christ are darkness and death finally, ultimately dealt with. That's different than what this psalmist experienced. He entered into his father's presence, right? After he was raised. And he was fulfilling all the hopes, all the anticipations of those people, all the promises Christ fulfilled in himself. He changed everything. But that doesn't mean that all that the psalmist said can be brushed aside. Right? See, you might have been sort of waiting for the, oh yeah, see, now it's better. Jesus came. So we don't have to talk like that. You can just sort of take that page of your Bible and, you know, if it takes up two pages, you can sort of fold it over and don't have to read that again. Or you can say to your kids, hey, here, if you want to color on this page, you can. Yeah, we don't need it. Jesus came. It's cool. That doesn't happen. We don't ignore, push down the excruciation of this feeling of this trauma. 
that we have gone through, that you are going through maybe. You don't have to. There's a second way we need to see our Savior here. You need to know that your Savior experienced what this psalmist describes. Please, please, please don't rush ahead to Jesus as some Superman ideal. Don't get this picture of Jesus that he just sort of, you know, he's like, yeah, you want me to go to the, you me to go to the world? Cool, I can do it. I'll go right on in there. And he walks around. You know, nothing touches. He's got like this aura around him. Nothing touches him. All the pain, suffering just passes. So that you get that idea about Jesus. Right, that he suffers, I mean, that he goes through what he went through, but it was no problem because he was perfect. He was God. But that's not what your Bible says. It's not. Does Jesus experience what this psalmist describes because he was in a garden, right? Sweating blood, right? And it's not... You know, oh, it's so disgusting. That's what makes it so bad. That's not what makes it so bad. What makes it so bad is that he was asking, is there any way, any way, just I'm all in the off chance that there is any way that I can avoid this cup of wrath that I'm about to drink? Can we do that? No? Okay, I was just checking to see. He was, he was tormented over what was coming. He wasn't untouched, people. He wasn't untouched. And, and better, better, he takes these psalms, he takes these psalms that you're reading now, and you know what he does? He, he talks like they do, right? He was hanging on a cross, right? And again, this isn't like, let's just see how bad we can paint the picture of all of his suffering so that we can really feel it. That's not the point. The point is, he experienced on that cross isolation. He was alone. On the cross, he was feeling the full weight, the full weight, the full press of that darkness and death. It was on top of him. And do you know what he said? You know what he said? Remember what he said? He said, it's cool, I can take it. That is not what he said. He said, why have you forsaken me, Father? He was not just making the psalmist feel good by quoting him. That was a real question. Because it was a real experience. He was facing death. He was being cut off. And he knew it. His sinlessness doesn't make him untouched. His sinlessness makes him fully conscious of every moment, every excruciating moment. Your Savior knows what the psalmist is talking about, and he knows what you are talking about. That's, that's the payoff of this. To have a Savior who's gone through it. He knows what the psalmist is talking about. He knows what, this, what you're talking about. 
because he lived it. He took on the pain, the suffering, the confusion, the despair, all of it. All of your stuff, he took it on himself. And you know what he says now? You know what that means? You know what you get now? Tell you what you don't get. You don't get a savior that goes, really? Come on, stop whining. You don't. You don't get a savior that goes, suffering? You want to talk about suffering? You don't get a savior that says, would you please just shut, shut up and sit over in the corner? Just don't say anything right now until I figure out what to do with you. You don't have a savior who does that. You do not. You have a savior who stepped into this world broken by the fall. You have a savior who really, really touched it and smelled it and tasted it and felt it for everything that it is and it was. You have a savior who experienced the traumatic event. The world ruled by sin and death. And because of that, you have a Savior who is able to say to you now, I know where you are. I know where you are. And you know what? I hear you. I hear you. He says, I feel. I feel it with you. I feel it. Not alone. Because I am with you. That's what he says. Right in the midst of your darkness. And that sets you free. Sets all of us free. But maybe in a way that you didn't think. Because, again, it doesn't change the whole picture, right? It doesn't make everything go away. It sets you free to allow yourself to be open to the trauma that you're facing in all the ways that it is tearing you apart. You, you, can, actually, you can actually allow yourself to feel it, to be open about it. How about this one? And I'm talking, I don't know, and I know there's going to be somebody like this in here. I know it will be. But you need to hear this. It sets you free to be honest about your experience right now while you are so disoriented by the trauma that you've experienced, while you're so enveloped, uh, enveloped by it. What, what we're saying that Christ does with this psalm. He experiences all that stuff. He says those things to you. And then he opens your hand and puts Psalm 88 in your hand and he says, Take it and tell me again. Tell me again. That sets you free right now in the midst of all of this, what you're going through right now, really, in real time, in this moment. It sets you free to feel isolated from everything and everybody around you. It sets you free to be honest about that. It sets you free to say, I don't feel anybody. I mean, I know they're right there and they're right there, but I can't feel them. It sets you free to say, 
I know what I'm supposed to say and what I'm supposed to think and what I'm supposed to feel and what I'm supposed to act like. I know and I want to, but I can't. I can't. Set you free to say that, to express that. You know what? It sets you free right now to be able, if you could, to stand up right where you are and say, you know what, Greg, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Right? I mean, I hear you talking about this, this stuff and what Jesus has done. And, you know, I, it just, I can't feel it. It's not getting in. It's not getting here. Because it's too dark. It's too dark. Set you free to be able to say that, to be able to express it. And it sets those of you free who are at a different place. Those of you who are in a place to hear it, it sets you free. Right? It sets you free to take this psalm, to hear what your Savior says to you, to take that psalm, to pull it in close to you. To just embrace it and to overflow with compassion for those people who can't feel it yet, who aren't there. For you to be able to grieve with them and hurt with them and agonize with them and hold them up right? until, until they can. That's what Christ does with this psalm. That's how he uses it. That's how he, that's how he changes us as a people. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for these moments that we've had. Pray that you will... Let these words land where they need to land, Lord. Anything that was just absolutely useless and of no good, I pray that it will just fall to the ground and that you will take what was um, capable of communicating something true about you, something real, praying that you will use that and you will, by your Spirit, that third person, that you would... Speak those words to your people. That you would grant them ears to hear and hearts that can drink it in. Lord, that you would walk closely to those who are so stuck, so just struggling right now. Can't hear. To be with them, giving what they need, granting what they need. Letting them know in whatever way they can, they can get it. That you're with them. And Lord, make us a people that brings all of us, all of ourselves to you to experience your grace and mercy. And that we live patiently with each other. Waiting for them to be all, bring all of themselves to you. Would you make us a people that reflect 
your son who does all of this, who provides for us in all of these ways. In Christ's name.